Hi, this is Monica Wesley for The Sugar Science, um, and I have the pleasure today of speaking with uh, Calvin Carter. He's a postdoc in the lab of Val Sheffield and also working with Dale Abel at the University of Iowa Career uh, Carver Center of Medicine. Also, Sunny Huang, who's an MD-PhD, and she's also working um, in collaboration uh, on her PhD, part of her training in the lab of Val Sheffield and with Dale Abel. They are coming to us direct from Iowa. Thank you both for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Monica. I just love this story. I think it's just so fascinating. I know you guys are primarily focused on type 2 diabetes, but I think that there's a lot here that could be, you know, could parlay into the world of T1D, type 1 diabetes. So let's talk a little bit about it. Let's talk about the serendipity of this discovery. There was a collaboration that sparked it. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So, so this project started off in a completely different direction. I've always been interested in the effects of these electromagnetic fields. You know, they're all around us, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, cell phone radiation. Um, they're passing through us every moment of every day. And for some reason, we've kind of accepted that they probably don't do anything, although there's not been any real thorough studies into that area. And, uh, and so that's, that's just been a an interest of mine just as a child of the 2000s growing up with you know the first generation of Wi-Fi and cell phones and everything um, and so the way that this went down was um, I sort of had a uh, an opportunity to pursue this um, I was supposed to head off to med school um, I had got in I got my PhD I kind of wasn't sure what I was gonna do um, wanted to have more of an interaction with patients and uh, so I applied to med school got in and I had maybe about uh, about six to seven months before I had to move out. I had to go to New Haven um, and, you know, get settled in and all that. Very um, nice. I know New Haven well. Beautiful place. Beautiful place. Um, and so in that interim, you know, that six-month period, I figured, you know what? Let's just start something crazy. I've always wanted to do it. Um, let's build some of these devices that can emit these fields. And uh, let's just test it. And so... Um, my background's in neuroscience. I was really interested in the effects on uh, particularly brain behavior, um, especially memory. Um, you know, wh what is a memory? Where does it come from? Um, can we disturb it with fields? Are memory stored in a field rather than in the synapse, in the DNA, et cetera? Um, and so uh, we had a, initially I was using a mouse model that's pleiotropic. So it has a whole host of different issues um, that go along with it. It's called Bardet-Beetle syndrome. Um, you know, there's cognitive dysfunction. Um, they also have retinopathy, um, and they have insulin resistance, which mm. wasn't so interested in back then, um, to be quite frank. Um, but things kind of work out pretty, pretty funny. Um, I found so I was sort of tinkering for about five, five to six months trying all sorts of different um, parameters, frequencies, amplitudes, combinations of fields. And um, early on, we had a pretty interesting finding that sort of led me to believe that there's probably something here. And so that's why I just kept uh, plugging away. And so I had about uh, literally about four weeks left before I had to move out to New Haven. And uh, <laughs> I was hoping to have something done so I could at least publish it, move out, and say, you know, I was productive during this period. Um, and so, so that's when Sunny came into the lab, and, and things kind of took a sharp right turn. So 
Um, what Calvin is talking about was that was when I had finished my first two years of med school and started in my PhD. So my background, I grew up with half of my family. So everybody on my dad's side had type two diabetes. And so I kind of watched them growing up, like having to take a lot of pills, injections, and then just like growing up with that, I was interested in the disease and like how it worked. And so I learned more and more about it and how there was like a genetic component to it. Yes. And after college, I actually worked at the NIH for a couple of years and I had the opportunity to work in this metabolic diseases program, like a rare genetic metabolic diseases program. Very cool. And I just saw how research was really able to help these patients who didn't have any idea what they were doing, um, like what was going on. Mm -hmm. And so I came to Iowa wanting to kind of do genetics research and Val was like the perfect mentor because he had worked on the original human genome project. And so I was like, awesome, I'm gonna go into this lab. I wanna study diabetes. And this was like one of my first weeks in lab. And I just needed to practice learning how to collect blood and measure blood glucose. I didn't have any mice of my own. And so I had talked to Calvin before and he was like, oh, I have like all of these mice that I've been treating. They look pretty normal. You can just have them and like practice. <laughs> so I started measuring the blood glucose on these animal models. And like, it was just kind of weird because they're normally supposed to be, you know, insulin resistant, type two diabetic. And all of the ones that he had treated had normalized blood sugar. And I was like, Calvin, there's something weird going on here. And I showed it to him. Yeah, yeah, she showed it to me that first day. And I was like, look, this happens to all of us. It's your first day in the lab, you know, <laughs> it's easy to make mistakes. <laughs> oh, nice. There, there's something wrong with the glucometer. You know, let's, no problem. Here's another one, go back and measure it um, again. And so, she uh, she came in the next day um, that made all the measurements and showed it to me later in that evening. And I looked at it again. I was like, there's, 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 there's no way. <laughs> like, let's, let's just do it one more time just to be safe that there's something real here. Um, and so and she came back again and measured it. And, you know, there was sufficient um, number of animals in each group that it was like, wait a second. There's there's something really weird going on here. Let's let's mm -hmm. follow this up. And that's what, that's just what started this whole project. That's fantastic. I, I mean, you know, it's interesting. I mean, it just shows the power of collaboration yet again, because if she had never come to you and said, hey, do you have any mice laying around that I could practice on this? You wouldn't have seen it. You would have been hanging mm -hmm. out and yeah. enjoying the snow over there in New Haven right now. So <laughs> I think it, it just, it, it underlines the fact that collaboration is so powerful. And so let's just go from here to, uh, you know, talk a to me a little bit about this whole idea that you went through the literature and looked at things as sort of far out there as bird migration <laughs> in terms of this, uh, you know, the electromagnetic fields and, and what might be happening to this, with this weird result. So, what happened was we, we decided to kind of bring on some expertise just to make sure we weren't um, missing anything pretty obvious. You know, it's, there's a, when we're dealing with energy fields, 
we're not just dealing with like necessarily the dose of some um, drug that we're administering. Um, we're also dealing with environmental um, factors as well, temperature, heat, light, et cetera. So we had to make sure all of that was steady. Um, and then we, uh, we started working with Dr. Dale Abel, who's an expert in diabetes research um, and an amazing physician as well. And, uh, and so we, the first thing we did was we looked kind of where it's an obvious area to look. If you're improving insulin sensitivity, the obvious place to look would be at the signaling proteins that mediate the insulin response. So typically, right. these are like, uh, you know, phospho-AKT, phospho-GSK, insulin receptor, things like that. Measured all of that, and with any insulin sensitizing drug, like metformin, for example, when you treat with it, you normally see an increase in the phosphorylation status of these proteins, indicating that it's working. Um, we measured that, uh, expecting to see something pretty obvious. And what we found was there was no change in those proteins. And in some um, cases, we actually saw a reduction in the phosphorylation of some of these intermediates. And that, that was just a really, really weird finding to us. We're like, okay, what, what are we doing wrong here? There's something not right. Yeah. What's going on? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we followed up again and again in, in different we looked, models. We looked in different tissues. Like we looked at liver, fat, muscle, like everything that you would traditionally think of as a tissue that's being affected by diabetes and how um, insulin signaling would be improved in those tissues. And we just didn't see anything. Yeah. It's weird. So at that point, we, uh, we had to put on our uh, tinfoil hats. <laughs> say, <laughs> what else is going on here? Like we're dealing with energy fields. How can an energy field interact with biological material? So that's when we had to do, do a deep, deep dive through the literature. What is going on here? And um, one, of the, one of the best fields that's been studying this for quite some time is the migration literature. And this yeah. dates back even before the 70s. Yeah, fascinating. You know, so the, I should back up and say that the types of fields that we're applying, we call them sort of earth fields because it's a magnetic field and an independent electric field. And interestingly enough, the earth has these same fields. There's that geomagnetic field, very weak, um, and then there's an electrostatic field that's generated um, between the ionosphere and ground. And so um, with that in mind, um, again, there's animals that are capable of sensing these fields and they use it for things like long distance navigation, migration, bacteria use it for directional motility, spatial orientation. How are they able to do that? That yeah. seems kind of interesting. Yes. Um, and what that literature told us was that um, essentially animals, um, bacteria, really just any type of organism possesses essentially a, a sixth sense. They have the ability to sense these fields because there are, for whatever reason, um, biologically encoded molecules that are capable of changing in response to certain fields. Mostly antioxidants in, in what you're looking at, correct? So some of that, yes. Yeah, so antioxidants play a role. And what, what the migration literature really showed is that it's free radical mediated. And so there's a component of 
molecules, um, whether they're reactive oxygen species or different type of free radicals, that can respond to fields. Why is that? They're paramagnetic. Um, fields require materials or molecules that are paramagnetic. So obviously there's iron, which is one, um, and then there's free radicals. They're missing an electron in their valent shell, which makes them paramagnetic, able to respond to these externally applied fields. Um, and, and so that's, that's an area that we started to pursue. At a very basic level, are the fields interacting with these free radicals? Um, and that's when we, we sort of recruited another group of experts, like you mentioned, team science. Um, it makes things a lot easier, go a lot quicker. We recruited Dr. Doug Spitz and Dr. Gary Bittner, who wrote the textbooks on redox free radical biology. Um, and we started to measure these. Yeah, and we it's found so important to get, you know, to gather um, people with the different perspectives to weigh in on your problem and, and help, gr you know, grind towards the solution. You know, and, and, and to that point, you know, as a postdoc, as a grad student, I always got this sort of, I'll call it a feeling. I don't know if it's necessarily pressure, but a feeling that, you know, we're supposed to be experts in one particular domain. We have to specialize in one area. Yeah. And I've, I've always felt like that, while that's extremely important in science, um, it can also sort of be a little bit limiting, totally. and especially when you're in these areas where you're looking around like, what is going on? The literature is, is not very clear here. We need additional experts to kind of clarify the picture. And, uh, and, and for us, it's been a real, a real blessing to work with all of these people. Um, but uh, we measured these, these free radicals, and we saw that there was huge changes in them. The fields were changing, we'll call it the milieu of, of ROS, of reactive oxygen species. And again, that was um, kind of surprising to us because we were going into this expecting a change in some of these insulin signaling intermediates. We did not see any change there. And but you also, the, the electromagnetic fields you were dealing with were like 100 times that of the Earth's magnetic field, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, yeah, that's right. So, mm -hmm. so just to sort of like frame it, that was you know, that was the starting point. Did you change the, I mean, cause those, those mice had had sort of a, um, you know, one, one magnetic field or did you have a range of magnetic fields you're applying to them? So, I mean, since then we've done a range sort of a, you know, quasi dose response um, experiment at the time, you know, for whatever reason, it's the last set of parameters that I had been trying were the combined fields. Um, and so that's, that's kind of what, what actually wound up working. Some of these other field types um, did not show an effect. Mm. So there's, you know, we get a lot of comments, hey, uh, what about people or, or pilots who are surrounded by, you know, cockpit with electromagnetic radiation or people who go into MRI, can they treat diabetes? We're like, are they the right fields? That's, that's important. Um, and so, uh, you know, from that point, that's when we, uh, we had kind of like a big flashing light, like, look over here, look over here, Ross, Redox, there's something going on here. Um, and interestingly, both hepatocytes and pancreatic beta cells are chock full of mitochondria. 
Um, so, right. So let's talk about that a teeny bit. Like we talked a little bit offline that the anti, you know, the liver, you primarily looked in the liver and, and what about the pancreatic beta cells? How do you compare contrast those cell types two cell types in terms of their antioxidant? Um, what do you want to call it? Uh, you know, how much they have and then, and how, and how these, this electromagnetic fields could impact both of them or not. Well, so I think one of the major differences is that the liver um, is actually the major producer of antioxidants, this one particular antioxidant, glutathione, which is what we focused on in the paper. And it's the tissue that actually makes all of this and ships it out to a lot of other tissues in the body. Um, and I think that in the pancreas, they may have those capabilities, but it's not to the extent that the liver is able to actually produce that antioxidant. Right. And that, that's always been the question. Why the beta cells in particular? Why is the immune system going after the beta cells? Yeah. And there, there seems to be an increasing number of studies that show that beta cells are particularly sensitive to redox stress or reactive oxygen species, oxidative stress. That's and true. like Sunny said, it's, you know, beta cells, there's publication showing this, beta cells have a lower antioxidant capacity than the liver, which, you know, is the major detoxifying organ uh, in the body. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now let's talk a little bit about um, what you saw when you looked at hepatocytes in a dish. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so this was the question, um, you know, I should back up a little bit and say one big finding we found in addition to changes to blood sugar, in addition to changes to insulin, the insulin response, um, which we measured by clamps, um, we saw major changes in um, glucose disposal. So the question really was, what is driving the changes to the insulin response? Why is the insulin sensitivity going up with these fields? Um, and so we knew that there was an increase in glucose disposal. The glucose circulating was going somewhere. Right. And we did tracers and we were looking, where is it going? And what we found was there was no obvious glucose sink um, that we measured, except for the liver. Mm -hmm. um, and what we found was that there was huge increases in um, glycogen content in the liver. And so the fields were triggering flux into the liver and some of that glucose was being shunted off into glycogen. Mm -hmm. um, and there's some other reasons why, but it all comes back to redox because once you shunt off of glucose 6-phosphate towards glycogen, yeah. really one of the prime destinations is pentose phosphate and overarching its redox response. And so that was a big um, change that we found that we're following up on is the mm -hmm. change in glucose fate. And so we wanted to see, um, and we had another indication too, that these changes in glycogen did not occur in muscle. We used tracers into muscle glycogen and found there was no difference with the fields. So um, very liver specific. Very liver mm -hmm. specific. 
So we just cultured some uh, primary hepatocytes and, uh, um, and we also did this in human um, hepatocytes from donors too. And what we saw was that even in the isolated hepatocyte, we were seeing these increases in glycogen. So that's kind of how we saw that it may be a very tissue-specific effect that the EMFs are causing. I mean, yeah, that, that's very interesting. And what, um, so, so what are your, what's next for you? I mean, you've, you've formed a company, Gemini Health. Um, you're, you know, in the thick of it. So tell us a little bit about that. How did you, how did you come, how did you s decide to scale this idea into a company and how did you do it? So I think like we both love the basic science and understanding what's going on um, at the very like levels of this project. But one of the other things that really drives us is being able to translate this to something that will actually help patients on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, that's so, so, so important. Yeah. Yep. And yep. so we kind of looked at the various options. And unfortunately, a lot of science does get stuck in the lab sometimes just because the path towards commercialization is so long. And when there isn't like the guiding force from the scientific end of things, it's really difficult to get that final product to True. patients. Mm -hmm. And so that's when we decided that, you know, we want to see this to the end goal. And so we started up a startup, mm -hmm. me, Calvin, and then Calvin's twin brother. Um, and we named our startup Gemini and it has two eyes. Um, and so, and it's representative of like the twins. So Calvin and Walter, the two eyes at the end, and then I always say that I'm the eye that's in the middle. So you know, oh. the third twin. Keeping keep the peace. <laughs> that's great. Very balanced. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and I think a a big challenge too. So we we see this as something that can really make treatment easy for patients with type two diabetes. Mm -hmm. You know, managing diabetes. Uh, we hear it all the time. Very very cumbersome. You know. Yes side effects, the just the, the number of pills and injections. Um, and an energy-based treatment is something that seems really appealing to patients. Um, a unique kind of aspect of this that we found and reported in the paper is that um, the treatment, we're seeing these really massive improvements in insulin sensitivity really, really rapidly. And so within three days of treatment, we're seeing improvements. And treatment is only applied for just seven hours per day. And we typically apply this treatment during the time that animals sleep. And so we envision a product, um, a wearable device, that essentially patients can come home from work, um, spend time with family, get ready for bed, put on our device right over their abdomen so it's targeting that key tissue, and uh, go to bed. How, so large is, how large is your device? So that's all in prototyping right now. Um, we're hoping to make it uh, somewhat feasible as a wearable, so relatively small fit over the abdomen. Um, but uh, like a little hot yeah, I mean, bottle. Sorry. Maybe like the size of a of a heating pad or a hot water bottle or something. Yeah, yeah that's the mm -hmm. idea. Yep. Mm -hmm. That sounds great. Can you know? Um, I just 
I, I, I'm very, very uh, excited for you both. I mean, you're, you're young scientists and you're just sort of just going fearlessly into this, the world of creating a company and uh, really fleshing out this sort of big idea. I, I do wonder if you have any ideas, if you can talk briefly about uh, or hypothesize briefly about how could this uh, impact even type one diabetes with those who patients who are struggling with, um, you know, insulin resistance. And you know, that's a common thing that happens with uh, athletics or even studying or um, disease. If they get ill, um, it's very common to have insulin resistance, uh, even right. a around, you know, hormonal changes for females, et cetera. So mm -hmm. uh, is there even a, you know, a glimmer of an idea that this could even, you know, help those types of folks? Or what do you think? Well, I think one of the things that we found in our paper is that based on our animal studies, we're not actually increasing insulin levels to elicit these effects. So it's more of an insulin sensitizing effect. So making yeah. the tissues respond better to insulin. And so from that side of things, if type one diabetics are you know, using insulin, but having insulin resistance, then potentially this could be an adjuvant to their insulin therapy since up to now it seems like not many of the type 2 diabetic drugs that are out there are really effective for that in type 1. And yeah, yeah and some are and and you know, I think the other area this could help um, is to you know in those cases to hopefully um, reduce the insulin requirement for patients who are taking yes. insulin. Well um, some people some type 1s do take metformin now right so mm -hmm. Right, and mm -hmm. you're you're kind of insinuating that there's a lot going on in that realm there. Uh, so you, I, I, I mean, it's it's all speculation at this point, right? But it's it's really nice to it's interesting to think about. Oh yeah, 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 and and you know again, so t targeting the redox state has been a challenge for quite some time. Um, in the '90s, I think a lot of people got really excited about this um, about the potential for using sort of antioxidant treatments to manage diabetes, because um, studies have shown that patients with type two diabetes have elevated levels of oxidants and reduced levels of antioxidants. And so they did these studies where they just infused in antioxidants into patients. And they found that uh, short-term infusions actually enhanced the insulin response. So it, so to speak, treated type two diabetes, um, but that's, obviously not a practical treatment because um, it requires continuous infusions because these uh, antioxidants have really short half-life and to get high enough levels in the blood, now you're causing side effects that are really unpleasant. And so we see these fields, this treatment modality as more than just a diabetes treatment. We really see it as a redox modulating therapy. I hear um, you. Yeah, I see that. And the other thing that's interesting is, you know, I, from the paper, um, there were no ill side effects seen in your animal models, correct? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep, that's right. And right now, um, we're in the process of initiating a, a clinical trial here at the University of Iowa. Um, we're working with some really great uh, clinicians on this. And so that is something that we hope to start um, in 2021 and proof of concept and that'll mm -hmm. kind of be our uh, our uh, first step along the way um, our regulation path 
I can't wait to see what uh, you guys end up um, with here. This is really, uh, really, really exciting work. And I cannot, I think it's really going to be very, um, very fun to watch it evolve. I wondered if you could just do a quick shout out on the title of your paper and where people can find it. Yeah, so it's, uh, we changed the title a few times, so I probably should read it, but I think it's Exposure to Static, Magnetic, and Electric Fields Treats Type 2 Diabetes. You could find it uh, at Cell Metabolism. I think if you go to the homepage, I think it's like one of the most read articles yes, right now. That's um, what I saw this morning. And it's free too. Um, I think it's still free. Open access. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, we wish you all the best. We'll be checking back in, hopefully in the spring, and um, uh, you know, really expecting great things from the two of you. And uh, thanks so much for talking to us. And, yeah, um, absolutely. If you're interested in following us and for for updates, you can follow us on Twitter. Um, I'm at Calvin S. Carter, and I'm at Huang Sunny C. Fantastic. We will do. Awesome. Thank you so much, Monica. Thank you.